Good morning. I'm very glad you guys are here this morning. We're continuing our study uh, on the church. We have been studying through the nine indicators of what a New Testament church is. And as we got to the indicator of evangelism, we decided we need to drill down a little deeper into that and address how we share the good news in our city. And so we're going to work through that for a few Sundays. And we're going to start by addressing uh, where we are. And the way we're going to do that is talk about cultural Christianity. If we're going to reach our city, guys, if we're going to reach Rome, Georgia, and Floyd County, we're going to have to learn to exegete our city's culture and then learn how to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ inside of that culture. Today we're going to do a surface level introduction to cultural Christianity. Some refer to it as nominal Christianity. You may hear either one of those terms applied to where we live. And we're going to see if Jesus addresses it specifically. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 21 to 23 in just a moment. So hang right there. And I want to set that up by helping us see our city through the right lens. Dean and Sarah, who is part of our tribe, wrote a fantastic little book called The Unsaved Christian. And I suggest you uh, go and read this. It will be very helpful for you. Maybe study it and, uh, with some brothers and sisters in your radical life group. But this will be a very helpful book for you to work through to get some of the nuance of nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity. I want to share with you a quote from page thirty. In this book, Dean says, When we think of unreached people groups, we envision intrepid missionaries taking the gospel to a place where the name of Jesus has never been spoken. But many American pastors, and I would say also Christians, because it's not just pastors, it's all of us as we are engaged in our world, are faced with a similarly daunting task to bring Jesus to a place where he is admired but not worshipped, where God is grandpa in the sky, where many of the congregants are good people who don't know they need to be saved. Cultural Christianity is not new. In fact, cultural Christianity is ages old. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity fitting appropriately and indigenously into its context. That's good missional activity. Rather, cultural Christianity is something that looks like Christianity, but is not. Because it has fundamentally denied obedience to everything Jesus has said. Jesus told us in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, observe everything I have commanded you. Cultural Christianity is fundamentally denied obedience to everything Jesus has taught. Cultural Christianity then becomes its own subculture. Poor cultural expressions of Christianity are a natural human progression from passionate, accurate, indigenous, and grounded belief and practice 
Two, shifting over to those good things. Two, assumed facts and foreign practices that are passed on in unique subculture language and forms without any evaluation of whether or not that is actually good and valid. Cultural Christianity is steeped in biblical illiteracy by people who claim to be insiders. Assumed biblical fact as opposed to actual biblical knowledge. Cultural Christianity can be very, very difficult to spot. Its symptoms are well hidden within the fabric of assumptions of a culture that never gets questioned. Just assume that this is normative. You have to be able to exegete your city and the culture of of your city and the culture of Christianity inside your city in order to be able to pick up on some of these well-disguised symptoms. This is difficult. This is a hard task, exegeting your culture and your city. It would be kind of like asking a fish to describe water, if a fish could describe water. It's just assumed, and no one has ever thought to describe the assumptions. Here's some practices and phrases. If you go to the blog at mitchjolly.com, you can see... I gave you six phrases and or practices you may hear or see inside cultural Christianity that you can help diagnose. I'm going to give you all six. I'm just going to give you a couple of them to help you get your head around some things you might see and hear that are symptoms of a cultural Christian context. The first one I'll give you is very simply this number one is you may hear someone referred to as a really committed Christian. And you've probably heard that and never thought anything funky about a really committed Christian until you juxtapose it with a Christian who's not committed. And maybe you've never asked the question, well, can I be a Christian and not be committed? And I think then it shows us the fact that we may be steeped in biblical illiteracy because if you read your Bible, there's no such thing as a Christian who's not committed. Right? So if we see somebody who reads their Bible and prays and goes to church and tries to make disciples and cares about the nations, we might call them really committed Christians as opposed to the rest of us who are just kind of, eh, I'm going to heaven. That's a symptom of cultural Christianity. One might be using church membership or church attendance for social advantages or social purposes or comfort for that matter before teaching and missional and doctrinal conviction there's a social advantage to me being here well there's some things I don't agree with but my social construct is more important than biblical fidelity that's a sign or a symptom of deeply ingrained cultural Christianity Cultural Christianity is an assumed religion created over successive generations with legal and transactional requirements that are paid for by minimal effort to appease the God of our own creation. I want this to be clear. Cultural Christianity's God is not the God of the Bible. Cultural Christianity is the result of declining biblical faithfulness, Increasing adaptation of unbiblical values, 
becoming political pawns rather than prophets and a failure to disciple future generations in the faith. So do you think Jesus addressed this at all? I think he did. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. And I want to be clear. Jesus in this passage is not addressing American cultural Christianity. What we're going to do is read it, understand it, and make application of it to our setting. What Jesus is addressing is some assumptions developed in Judaism that were causing them to miss the kingdom of God. Thus, Jesus was addressing some core cultural and theological assumptions that would be the very reason many listening to him would miss the kingdom of God. I would argue that these cultural and theological assumptions of first century Judaism are the same ones we are prone to. And therefore, Jesus' words apply as much to us today as they did to the people he first spoke them to. And I would argue in Christian history, every generation that begins to assume rather than actively pursue. So let's look at the passage, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Wow. So it's a complete sentence, but I stopped it after heaven. Wow is not in the text. So let me read the complete sentence. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name do many mighty works and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness wow that's a difficult passage so let's pull out six observations and then we're going to make some applications that are going to help us identify and deal with cultural Christianity for us today. So observation number one, Jesus teaches us in verse 21, the first part, that lip service is not enough. Lip service isn't enough. Jesus says, everyone who says to me, or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you and I can say with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and it may not be enough. I want this to be clear. This is not seen to be in conflict with Romans 10.9. That says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jesus isn't conflicting with what he inspired Paul to write later in Romans chapter 10. Because when the Bible speaks about belief, the Bible always has more in mind than simple mind stuff. When the Bible says believe, the Bible means that there is a connection between the intellectual component and the action component. In other words, belief, belief is truth worked out in action. 
In other words, belief and obedience go together. Jesus didn't pull the Jedi mind trick of separating belief from practice. So Jesus, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he's not denying the fact that in order to be saved, you have to confess with your mouth and say Jesus is Lord, right? And Paul goes on to say that. If you believe and confess, you believe and act. When Paul says believe, Paul means you believe and you begin to act it out. You work it out. And he will tell the Philippians later. John will tell people later, you work that out in fear and trembling. James says faith without works is dead. But Jesus is letting us know here that simple saying the words is not enough. Lip service is not enough. Then it leads us to observation number two. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, obeying God's word is the evidence that we believe what we say. Therefore, obedience is central to faith in Jesus. In other words, these first two observations really are one observation. That it is the confession with the mouth and the actions with the life combined that show we are people of God. But what we can do in cultural Christianity is we can separate those two and we can draw nice neat lines down between them and simply say, well, I said Jesus is Lord, that's enough. And Jesus is making it clear, saying his words with our mouths is not enough. We see here in this observation number two that we then have to act on what we say. In fact, if you just look down a couple of verses, Jesus ends this section with a very familiar passage where he says, he who hears these words of mine and does them in order to drive the point home that it's not just saying it, but it's those who do it. He says, if you do this and then you act upon it, you build your house on the rock. And when life comes at you and the storms come, it can't knock it down because it's been founded on Him. So we see that obeying God's word is evidence that we actually believe what we say. Third observation we see here is that speaking mighty words that line up with Jesus is possible even if one doesn't know God. And this is an absolute critical danger of cultural Christianity. It's possible to say words that line up with Jesus and not know God. Listen to what Jesus said. On that day, many will say to me, now there's an implication here. What day? The day of the Lord. The prophets talked about the day of the Lord, the day that we will stand before Christ and either appeal to him based on the cross or our best efforts. And Jesus says, and by the way, best efforts are not enough. We appeal to Christ based on his finished work. So on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did, didn't, we, didn't we speak your word? We see here that it's possible to speak the word of God and not know him. Do you know it is currently in vogue to quote Jesus and even refer to some of his teachings for a multitude of reasons beyond his intent? We have two political parties who quote Jesus and use him out of context to pander to you. It's in vogue to use spiritual Jesus for advantages other than what Jesus intended his words for. It's a dangerous cultural expression of Christianity when you can pick Jesus from here and pick a little bit of Jesus from here and use it for our purposes. 
So it's possible to speak Jesus' words and not know him. Do not be fooled. God is not mocked. Just because someone quotes Jesus doesn't mean they know Jesus. Paul ran into this on his missionary journeys. In Philippians 1.15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry and others from goodwill. Meaning there are people who've seen this new enterprise and its capacity and they are preaching Jesus out of envy and rivalry. Paul had competitors. Why would you have competitors in the kingdom of God? Because Jesus has become a means to some other end. It's possible to quote Jesus and not actually know God. We have more spiritual information personally available to us at this point in history than we ever have had. You got sermons, you got blogs, you got video blogs, you got podcasts, you got books, you have audio books now. There's no end to spiritual information. And just because we know it and say it doesn't mean we know God. Number four, doing mighty and supernatural works in Jesus' name is possible even if one doesn't know and obey Jesus. Notice what he said here in the second part of verse 23. So in that day, they're going to say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We preached your word and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. So our fourth observation is doing mighty and supernatural works in Jesus' name is possible for people who don't know God. You say, how is that possible? You know how it's possible? Because Jesus' name is powerful. Jesus' name is powerful. You see examples of this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, verse 9 to 25, Simon the magician, who, who says he believes in Jesus, comes along and he watches the apostles lay their hands on people and the Holy Spirit is given and he wants to buy the power from them. Why? Because the name of Jesus is powerful. We live in a place where we don't see and experience a lot of the spiritual power that's actually around us because we're too sophisticated with our naturalistic worldview to assume that the world is a magical place. When in fact it is a very magical place, it's a supernatural place. And the powerful name of Jesus is so powerful that when the Lord spoke the word on the Sea of Galilee, the atoms he created to make up water had to obey because those inanimate objects came into being when he spoke. And when he tells them to stop, they must obey. So you cannot know God, use the power of Jesus, and see supernatural things happen and never know Jesus personally and that is a little bit terrifying Jesus said on that day they're going to say Lord we preached your word I cast out demons in your name and Jesus response um, I don't know you we find out here observation number 5 from verse 23 that Jesus standard is his knowledge of a person by grace through faith verse 23 and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not in the sense of the omniscient, all-knowing nature of Jesus. Jesus is the eternal God of all creation. He knows all things. But in the 
personal relationship sense, Jesus said, you did mighty works, you used my name, but I do not know you redemptively. Jesus' standard isn't us preaching his word or doing mighty works, it's whether or not we have been transformed by the good news of his kingdom and have a personal, thriving, intimate relationship with him that is lived out on a daily basis. That's Jesus' standard. And by the way, he makes that available by his grace through faith in him. It's that simple. John 17, one to three, Jesus said, as he's about to go to the cross and he is praying for his disciples and he's praying for us, you may see in your Bible a heading across the top that calls this the high priestly prayer. Verse one of John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. I love that statement, the hour has come. The purpose for which I came into the world is upon us. God's never late. <laughs> He's right on time. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life. Whoa, what's eternal life? What is that? Jesus is going to define it. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What's the standard? This is we know God through Jesus Christ. That's the standard. Jesus said, this is why I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to complete salvation for everybody who will turn to me and believe. And eternal life is not living forever. You're going to do that in one place or the other. Eternal life is knowing God a personal, intimate knowledge of the God of all creation through Jesus' glory. It's available by faith. Observation number six, Jesus knows and he distinguishes those who know him by grace through faith and those who simply used his name as a means to an end. Verse 23, and that I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus makes a distinction between those who know him and those who simply used him as a means to an end. And by the way, that's an indicator of cultural Christianity. Jesus is your end or he is your means to get to some other end. So how do we make application Matthew 7, 21 to 23, to help us deal with cultural Christianity. Remember, the goal is to help us understand how to communicate the gospel where we are. It is hard to do evangelism in a place where everybody's already a Christian. Thus, the name of the book, The Unsaved Christian. The question is, are they a cultural Christian, right? Or are they a really serious Christian, right? Like we talked about earlier. And that's where you have to work toward understanding and exegeting your culture and understanding the words to figure out, do they have a thriving, living relationship with Christ? Or are they simply using Jesus as a means to an end? Is Jesus how they're gonna get to heaven? If so, they don't know Jesus. Jesus is not my means to get to heaven. He is the end. Heaven happens to be one of the glorious byproducts. But it is not the point. You understand? Right, so here we go. Number one, I want you to make sure, make sure you know God through faith in Jesus Christ, evidenced by joyfully obeying everything Jesus has given us to obey. Remember, observation one and two really go together. It's not just saying the words, it's faithfully obeying everything Jesus gave us. So you need to make sure today that you know God through faith in Christ, and it is evidenced by joyful obedience to 
everything Jesus has given. And I emphasize evidenced by joyfully obeying. A cultural Christian grinds out their faith and drudgery because it is how they're trying to please God to get to the end. One who's been transformed by the gospel delights to obey because as Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, come to me all who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Obedience isn't a drudgery. It's discovering there's treasure and that treasure is more, worth more than anything. And I greatly delight to say your word and obey you because there's nothing better. And it's a light and joyful burden to carry there's a difference between those two and the difference is one is saved and one is not so make sure you know God through faith in Jesus evidenced by joyful obedience to everything Jesus has given to obey which is going to lead to application number two how am I supposed to know what Jesus has given me to obey scour the Bible to know God more and find all the glorious treasures of joyful obedience that lead to human flourishing, dancing in the light of the good news. I'm going to say that again. That's a loaded statement. Scour the Bible to know God more. He is available, and His glorious attributes are available on every page. Scour the Bible to know Him more and find all the glorious treasures of joyful obedience. There's treasure in obedience. There's a treasure hidden in a field and there is treasure found in joyful obedience that lead to human flourishing and they're dancing. Those treasures of joyful obedience are dancing in the light of the good news. They're not hidden. They're there for you to find. So scour your Bible to see those and then get after them in joy. Biblical illiteracy is a marker of cultural Christianity. Assumed Bible knowledge. Remember we talked about earlier on. Assumed facts. Not a joyful pursuit of truth, but assumed things that I heard somebody say who heard somebody say who their preacher said 20 years ago said. Right? God helps those who help themselves. It's the most quoted Bible verse in America. Barna Research. It's not in the Bible. That's a problem. Right? And so scour the Bible and you'll find you know God and you'll find these glorious treasures of joyful obedience that lead to your flourishing, dancing in the light of the good news. Number three. Make it your aim to know God better as your first priority because all of God is available to you in Jesus. There is nothing of himself he has kept back from you in his word. You can know him at the most intimate level you're willing to get in and go after him at. Make it your aim to know God better as a first priority. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 6, 33, and perhaps because we've been raised where we've been raised, you may know this one by heart. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Listen, that's true. That's true. 
Seek first the rule, reign, and salvation of Jesus Christ above all things, and he will take care of the food, the drink, the clothes. He'll throw that in. But if you come after the food, the drink, and the clothes, you will get them and you will miss Jesus. And on that day, he will say, depart, I don't know you. As Pastor Emmett said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his very soul? Make it your aim to know God better is your first priority, which leads to the last final application that helps us deal with cultural Christianity, deal with our context and know the Lord. Worship Jesus as a first priority through private prayer, singing, and Bible reading. Make it a first priority of your day to worship the Lord, to sing to Him privately, pray privately, read your Bible privately before the Lord. Personal worship for the follower of Jesus is the first key to being able to see and exegete your city because you've met with the God who knows and he will tell you what you need to know. Missing in much of our cultural Christian context is private closet time with the Lord alone where Jesus said, if you meet me there, the evidence will be evident on the outside. But if you only come to me in public, you will only get what you get, and that is people think you're a really committed Christian. And that's your reward. So our worship, our dealing with cultural Christianity starts privately when it's still dark outside and nobody knows you're up. And you worship the Lord and you pray and you seek his face and you read your Bible and you meet with him and then you greet your day with his eyes. And you put on the lens of worshiping Christ. Then you will see your city as he sees the city. Your heart will break for your city and those who don't know him. And you will tell them the way of escape. Because you know God better. Our churches are never going to be anything until all of us as individuals who come together corporate worship like that privately when nobody else sees Because see, private worship is fruit from being a for real citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And then that personal worship will lead to robust together worship because we know God. And listen, you can't see him and know him and be in any way, any way slack about him because you can't unsee glory. When you see him and know him, we will be a worshiping people who see and understand our city. We'll leave cultural Christianity in the dust and we will be disciple makers. The aim is to be able to preach Jesus to our city so they can hear and understand and for us to worship and obey the Lord Jesus. Let's pray and then we're going to worship together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will help us, your people, to make much of you as we worship you by faith. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would make your name great. Do not let us be nominal cultural Christians who are satisfied with a cheap imitation. By grace, show us your glory. Help us to respond in faithful obedience. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear and make us prophets of your word, doers in obedience of your word. And then, Father, would you bring Roman Floyd County 
as flocks for sacrifice, like the flocks at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so that the waste cities will be filled with flocks of people, and then they will know that you, Jesus, are Lord. Hear us as we come to worship. Be exalted, we pray in Jesus' name.